Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews, with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself, so if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for JLGBHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to, and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is the CEO of UK Youth, Nadidi Okezi. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. Nadidi Okenzi is an influential public, public speaker and um, she's a former teacher and executive of the new CEO of UK Youth, which is, leading nation, which is leading a national umbrella charity of young people committed to empowering and helping build brighter futures for themselves, regardless of their backgrounds or circumstances. A graduate of Brunel University, Nadidi was part of the Teach First, very first trainee teacher cohort in 2003 and rose through the teaching ranks to be assistant principal in Burlington Dance Academy, part of the ARK school family, dedicated to improving the education and opportunities available to young people facing the most challenging circumstances. Nadidi then returned to Teach First as the engagement strategy and later executive director, working closely with Brittle Whitworths, a former guest of Judge Be Virtual, and on helping the charity turn into what it is today. After working for Pearlton as the vice president of the secondary school profile and shaping tools for teachers to use in their classroom in January 2020, Nadidi was appointed the chief executive of UK Youth and has already led on a multiple initiatives seeking to improve youth access. In recent weeks following the tragic death of George Floyd in America and the huge outcry across the world, the DD has recently with UK Youth the hashtag Young and Black platform for young black voices to share their stories in a safe environment. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the stage tonight our very special guest, Nadidi Akenzi. Good evening, Nadidi. We're so excited to have you on the show. How are you? And how has lockdown been treating you? And how are you keeping positive? Hi. Sorry. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to um, be here. I was just wondering who you were talking about in that intro. It's very, um, <laughs> it's like some of the, I haven't heard some of that stuff in ages. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've heard so much about this youth organisation and, and got to hear a little bit of, um, about Jodeci speaking. So I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure to have you on. Um, how has lockdown been treating you? Have you 
how have you kept positive? Oh, good question. Two, two different questions in that one. Um, lockdown's been a, a, a real um, cultural shift. I think, as with everybody, it's been, it's been really uh, jarring to the senses. Um, and I think how I've been keeping positive is, you know, there's nothing like a crisis to help you get really focused on what you can do to um, make positive change. And so I think there have been lots of opportunities for us to think about what we can proactively be doing in this space. Um, and there have been lots of examples of that. So that's what's been keeping me going. Definitely. Um, we're really pleased to have you on JRGB Virtual tonight. Uh, we've been boosting positivity and keeping children and their families active and healthy for 12 weeks now since lockdown began with the help of special guests each evening. Um, but why is it so important that you join us this evening? I mean, any opportunity to um, engage with young people, I think, is... Um, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the core reason I do the work that I do. It's, it's where I get my fuel and inspiration. And I think you always leave every conversation um, wiser and much more grounded. Um, so I, it's, a, it's a selfish thing, really, because I get a lot from, from you all as well. So I'm really looking forward to, to engaging with you on the questions. Um, but I also think, you know, that GLGB are, are one of our, um, the youth organisations in our network. And so from my perspective, any opportunity to engage with organisations, um, you know, I guess at the forefront of working with youth, uh, young people is also something I truly value. Amazing. Um, and as seen with Jodice and Georgie, we're all about acts of kindness at JLGB. Um, and we always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others. You're involved in so many charities and through your work, millions take part in volunteering. But is there any personal access which you can to help pandemic? It's a really good question. Um, challenge myself on that. Um, I don't know. It, it's actually something I talk to my staff about all the time. Um, I we write a um, you know biweekly bulletin, staff bulletin that goes out. And um, I'm actually always signing off saying, um, let's remember to be kind to each other. Let's take the opportunity to be proactively kind um, to people and to think about where they may be coming from in every instance. So I think I often try and um, just send random messages to my staff of, um, about um, things they might have done that I've really appreciated, things where I've seen them and I want them to acknowledge that I've seen them. And so I think any, any opportunity to help people feel seen I think is a really important thing that um, they don't have to be loud about it. They don't have to have been um, uh, at the front of the presentation, but you know, the person managing the technology on an event, like just taking the opportunity to think, how can I um, show people that I see them and that I really value what they do? Um, so that's something I, I actually think about consciously every day. Um, and I, a lot of that has come from my um, 17 years in, formal education so working in schools I remember really early on in the first few years of teaching um you know when when students would leave they they kind of often write you as a teacher in notes um and um students would often often reflect on these small encounters that I just I didn't even remember but they meant so much to them and it might have been walking through the corridor and me saying 
oh, you know, oh, I love your smile or um, oh, I'm really proud of you, that thing that you did or just saying hello. Just these little moments where you just take the opportunity to see people. I, in those first few years of teaching, I really realized how important they were. And so that's something that's really stayed with me. So I think that's how I think about kindness. Um, it, it's about really showing people that you, you see them even in the very small moments. Definitely. And it's those small things that, like you said, just really stick with you. Um, and that's amazing that you consciously do that every day. Um, let's quickly go back to the very beginning. Let's talk about your childhood growing up and the youth opportunities you yourself had and how they shaped you. Did that influence your career into teaching and the charity sector? I'm laughing because I'm in my living room. My, my mother's here, so she's listening. <laughs> so, as I start talking about my childhood, let me see how far she lets me. Um, uh, one of the things I often reflect on is, and I don't know about the rest of you, but growing up, you go through lots of iterations of what you want to be when you grow older. Like there's lots of those questions that um, adults annoyingly ask you when you're growing up, but you're often thinking as well. And I went through a lot of iterations in, in my household. There were only two careers that my mother understood and they were lawyer or doctor. And so it was typically, you're going to be those two things. Um, but because I loved, I, even when I was a child, I loved working with young people. So um, I always knew, okay, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a, um, a family lawyer, a child, uh, you know, uh, if I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Like it was anything to orientate myself around um, young people. And I grew up um, really heavily involved in the church. And so I remember that even when I was in teenage church, I would go and volunteer in in the creche and I would, you know, go and volunteer in any youth organization um, event. I would always go to like the lower year groups because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to um, help. And so I would say that primarily my experience with youth organizations was, was, was fundamentally around the church. Um, we did a lot of after school clubs and, extracurricular but I actually don't remember those being as formative as the times I spent in church and especially growing up as a teenager youth group and you know we used to do I mean so much and again I grew up in a household where church was morning to night affair it was just you're just in church so weekends church church service after service um but I loved it because I was just with other young people and we were doing things we, we were doing exciting projects and we were helping the community and so for me those are the experiences that really formed um I really formed who I am today yeah so much of that within the kind of religious sector and socializing with youth your age yeah a lot of that that kind of echoes things in JLGB like our seniors look after our juniors and there's that kind of safe community where it does feel so empowering and, and all-encompassing in such a great way and it's amazing to hear your experience of it. Um, so after graduating, you took part in Teach First and its initial cohorts. Um, we recently spoke to Brett Wigdorts, sorry, I can't say names, um, the founder of Teach First and about what it is like starting this initiative. But what was it like for you to usher in a new generation of teachers? What made you choose to participate in this program? And does it make you proud to see how far it's come? Oh, well, great question. Um, I have to say that the first cohort of Teach First, we, we often joke that 
we were more naive than anything. I don't think um, we really understood <laughs> what we were saying yes to. And, and Brett and that team did a very good job of not necessarily giving us all the details about what we were really signing up to. So I think we, we were a cohort that were ambitious about doing something new and different. And for me, I had actually graduated already. So I was working, I was working in publishing and um, it was the career that I thought I wanted. It was kind of, you know, city, it was working for all these glamorous magazines and really, really quickly I realised I hated every minute of it. And what was missing were those things that I'd found in church and those things that I'd found, um, you know, that, that really were who I was, but I didn't really associate them with work. And so I missed the sense of feeling fulfilled and um, having a purpose. And so when I saw the Teach First advert, for me, it was so powerful because it was talking about something that was really purpose driven. And so myself and I think all of us, I think there were 196 of us or 186 of us. But I think we all shared this naive um, sense of wanting to do something um, um, bold and big to, to, to address educational inequality. And it was a very personal thing for me because of how I grew up and my environment and my, um, um, you know, community. And so I really, I really connected with the injustice of educational inequality. And so any opportunity to be involved with that was, 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 I was all in. I literally, from the moment I saw the advert to, to being on the residential train, it was three weeks. So I literally applied, um, got accepted pretty quickly packed up moved to canterbury it, it will happen very quickly but it was that momentum of wanting to be involved in something meaningful um but we had absolutely no idea what we were in for and it was up to now um however many years ago it was now um uh it's still one of the most formative experiences of my life because those two years I mean, I don't know if you've heard the term baptism of fire, but they, that was exactly what it was. And so the resilience, the ability to get up every morning and keep going, the ability to figure stuff out, even when you have no idea and there's chaos all around you, those things really strengthened and developed who I was. And they are definitely things that I still lean on as a leader. Um, so there were 186 of us in the first year. I think, you know, now Teach First is recruiting um, I don't know, almost maybe may, may, close to 15, 1700, maybe a year. So it's incredible. It's incredible to see where Teach First has gone. But under no circumstances did we know that was what Teach First was going to be. We weren't even sure if we were all going to make it for the two years. We weren't even sure if Teach First was going to make it through summer. Like that's the, that's the boldness of what Brett and that team did, because I think every month was living on the edge <laughs> of whether they were going to see another month um but they just didn't tell any of us that at the time so yeah <laughs> that's i mean that's an amazing story to see like kind of stumbling through things baptism of fire and to come out as you are now is so inspirational um and if we go on to a bit more about now for those who don't know could you tell us a bit about uk youth and what the charity does and how it supports so many youth charities, including JLGB, who have been members of your network for many years. Yeah, amazing. So UK Youth is, um, you know, it's a, it's a leading national charity. Its its primary focus is on the social and personal development of young people. 
Um, and that is typically developed in the non-formal education in terms of the programs, services and experiences that support young people's social and personal development. Um, but I often describe it to people um, who I think everyone has a, a real shared understanding of what formal education is. I think the youth sector is, is, is quite well anchored in the non-formal education. So it is still education, it is learning, it's development, but it's done in an environment that is just not as rigid as um, education um, typically is. So UK Youth has a vision that all young people would be equipped to thrive and empowered to contribute at every stage of their lives. And so we have those two um, pillars of our work. We, what, do, what do young people need to thrive? And I personally love that word thrive because what um, you need to thrive is very different to what Gabriella needs to thrive or what Lewis needs to thrive. And so the, the idea that um, what people need is um, bespoke to them is what I, I think the word thrive really encapsulates. And then empower to contribute, this idea that young people have agency, they have something to say, they have something of value to contribute, regardless of where they are, regardless of what part of their journey they're on, they have something that could add value to society, to business, to school, to wherever they, they, they you know, we're all these different sectors. And so those are the two pillars of our work. We work as a nationwide network of over five and a half thousand youth organizations and collectively um, reach over 1.6 million young people. And so we really feel ourselves as being a movement of um, organizations that are really championing the, the youth sector and the role of the youth sector in ensuring all young people get what they need to succeed in life. That's amazing. And it's the thriving word, the kind of making sure everyone is at, you know, the same place in the race and have those opportunities that is so inspirational. Um, perhaps it's not so new news now, but it's our first opportunity to wish you mazel tov on your appointment of CEO of you. UKU. Um, tell us, why did you want this role? And prior to lockdown, which we talked about, which we'll talk about shortly, um, what did you hope to achieve this time as leader of this incredible charity? That's a good question. Um, who remembers at this point? <laughs> the world has completely changed. Um, I mean, wanting the job, I, I was in a role, I was, um, you, you know, working for the education company Pearson. It was um, exactly what I thought I wanted. It was a global role. It was a really, you know, exciting learning experience. And I um, honestly stumbled across this advert. I saw it randomly on my timeline on Twitter. And um, I, I didn't even really know that much about UK youth. I hadn't really... Um, been um, that close to its work but I saw this advert I had no idea what made me click on it because again it was just you know this random timeline thing I read I clicked on it I read the job description I just started laughing because um, you couldn't have described a more perfect role for what I envisaged I would love to do so everything that UK youth stands for in terms of its mandate this idea of having a really eclectic mix of, of support programs and services that young people have access to um, is just something I've really believed in from, from when I was a young person. Um, and so it, it honestly was my dream job. And for me, in terms of what I wanted to achieve through the interview process, one of the things I was quite clear on was that I feel like UK Youth as an organization 
has a real opportunity to to galvanize change uh, across the youth sector and and um position youth work um in a way that is is understood and utilized across society more broadly and it would just be an honor to be part of that journey um i was actually saying to my um my chair earlier on today actually because it's coming to the end of six months and it's so funny i i had a break between my last role and this one and i did all the things you would imagine i was so diligent i planned i laid out my first hundred days i read books i promised myself i was going to get a coach i was going to do all of these things i was going to do it right it was brilliant i started started so strong did a listening store, spoke to every person in my organization, started meeting external stakeholders. We were working on our strategy, so got time to understand that. About eight weeks in, <laughs> the world implodes. And um, lockdown, you know, we had to close our outdoor learning center. I mean, just the most, I mean, we've all experienced it, but everything I planned just got completely thrown up in the air. And so it has been an incredibly humbling experience because everything that you planned, um, you know, that saying that um, uh, God laughs when we plan or something, I can't remember, something like that. But like this idea that like I had this exact plan, I knew where we were going to be six months in and it's, it's nowhere, shape, way or form, anything that I would have imagined. So I think really quickly, part of the challenge has been letting go of the plan <laughs> and embracing what is um and i know that's something that um you know as people of faith we talk about quite a lot this idea of not of surrendering um to to what what is and and learning to glean the lesson through it learning to understand how you can still be effective even if the situation is different to what you intended so um, yeah, it's, I can't even recognize where we are now versus where I thought we would be, but I'm learning on an hourly basis, Keely, to be okay with that. <laughs> I love that. We plan and God laughs. It perfectly exactly. sums up this year, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, so after so many years of formal education and supporting it through roles in policy and advertising adversary boards um, and through Teach First, what has it been like joining and leading a charity in the informal sector and youth sector? What do you think the main differences are? Do you have an idea of how much goes into the youth sector far beyond the school day? We talked about informal versus formal education. Could yeah, you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, and I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox on this because this is something that like, I think my biggest reflection is just how, um, is how surprised I am um, because I think, um, <laughs> it was funny, going through the interview process, people kept on saying to me, um, how are you going to gain credibility with the youth sector? You know, how are you going to convince them that, you know, you've got experience, you've got, you've got no experience in the youth sector? And I didn't really understand the question because my whole professional, I've been working with young people. So I didn't understand what this question was. Um, and I very quickly found out that the youth sector and the education formal sector do not see themselves the same. And so there's a real kind of learning curve around understanding the nuances of the youth sector and, and um, um, understanding, um, you know, the things that it really prides itself on and, and um, understanding how to translate that. But I'm actually 
so excited that I've got the formal education kind of background because my biggest reflection is if we are all truly in the service of young people, these two sectors cannot continue to be disconnected the way they are. That it makes absolutely no sense to me that in the education, formal education sector, I was not aware of this incredibly thriving, expert-filled, really creative, innovative sector that so many of my kids would have been engaging with and doing all things like this, amazing. I mean, how, I wonder how many of your teachers know you do this. I wonder how many of your teachers are aware of the role you might play in, the, in this club and the conversations you're having. I wonder the difference it would make to them to know the skills you are sharpening here and how they can ensure that they build on them in, in, the, in the classroom and vice versa, right? And so mm -hmm. I think this disconnect between the two sectors, and what I mean by that is that the way they plan and think and operate is, is in parallel, hopefully, but not connected. And so for me, that is something I've, I've started talking quite um, passionately about, because especially as a result of COVID, we do not, we have a burning platform now where there are just millions of young people who have um, been left without in ways that we, I think it will take us a long time to really understand the impact of. We've seen the impact of um, inequality around access, whether that's digital access or learning resources or, or learning at all. Um, we've seen all of those inequalities exacerbated in this period. And actually, there's so much of what needs to happen before September that the youth sector could play a really vital role in. But there's no point them doing that if the education sector isn't conscious of that and um, deploying that and building on that and vice versa. So I think this, this issue that I, I felt quite early on in my role, I don't think we've run out of time to keep speculating about it or worrying about how complicated it is we have to figure out a way of working together it, our young people need us to that's so true and especially right now i know we're doing this we're trying to keep youth mental health going but you don't know the differences in education and it seems crazy that neither are talking to each other as you said it's i had no idea um <laughs> Mahad, but um, well, we're having a few questions from the audience next. Um, so hopefully Louis is there and ready to ask his question. Hello, Louis. Yes, so you're involved with the Back Youth Campaign, which is an alliance across the youth sector. So what would you like to see the government do to support youth organisations such as DOV and JLGB so that there are no further closures and that they can, can continue to support young people in this difficult time and beyond? Nice easy one, Louis. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, the Back Youth Alliance, as you, as you said, is, a, is an alliance of organisations that I think because of um, their scale and, and, and reach have, have come together to form um, uh, an influence in alliance that works um, hopefully closely with governments to Im impact and influence some of the things that you're saying. I would say that just as I started in role, and um, again, before the world changed through COVID, I think government had made it very clear that they had the they they had made the commitment to 
to start investing in the youth sector in a really proactive way. So my predecessor and all of the um, CEOs in the, in the Back Youth Alliance and, and lots and lots of other youth organizations had really done a great job in campaigning for this investment. And so a, a significant amount of money, 500 million pounds was identified to pour into the youth sector over the next 10 years. Um, yes, that wasn't all that had been taken out, but it was definitely a start. And my understanding was that it was seen to be the start. Um, and then COVID hit. <laughs> and so now we are in a situation where there are lots of youth organizations that um, have really, really struggled to survive. And actually we've lost youth organizations through this period because of closures and you know the, the lack of funding income and opportunities. And so there have been ongoing conversations with government about um, what needs to happen around this to help youth organizations sustain, but also continue to be able to be effective um, in their support for young people. And I would say there are really positive signs around that. I think, um, you know, the charity sector more broadly had a really um, effective campaign called Never More Needed that was focused on, on helping Treasury understand the, the loss of income and they you know, secured 750 million pounds that, that went to the charity sector more broadly. Um, and some of that the youth sector has access to, but there is definitely still the need, Louis. And I think the conversation continues. Um, but we are in a situation now where before we can even talk about thriving, if we want to use that word again, we actually need to make sure that organisations can survive. And there's, there's, there's money and there's um, support needed to ensure that we actually don't lose these critical services um, before we even start figuring out the activity they could be doing. Thank you Thanks. so much, um, Louis, and obviously a brilliant answer. Uh, next up, we have Alana for our second question. Um, so this pandemic has been truly awful, especially for the elderly and for those that are high risk. And they're obviously the priority. But following recent updates um, and knowing that most of us won't be going back to school anytime soon and knowing um, we're not knowing what will happen with exams and universities and if people can go on holidays in the summer and it has serious toll on young people's mental health. Do you think enough focus is being given to young people's mental health at this time? Um, great question, Alana. Um, I think when all of this happened, you, you phrased the question perfectly. I think there was a, a sequencing of um, prioritisation um, in terms of need and, and, you know, rightly so, I think, you know, thinking about the, the most, um, most at need. And I think the conversation about young people was quite slow to start. I think that that is clear. I, I think that the, the realisation of what was going to happen to young people as a consequence of lockdown seemed to creep up on people um, in a way that is quite surprising. But I think then momentum definitely started building and stories and more spotlights and reports coming out about the impact on, on young people. Um, and then I think the academic side of the impact has definitely taken the spotlight. And there's a lot of focus on um, lost learning and um, the impact of that. And I am not in any way here to suggest that isn't a clear priority. 
um, 17 years in the education world, like I understand the issue of lost learning and, and it is a dire one. Um, but it goes back to what I was saying before, there is no way you address lost learning without addressing the mental impact of what's happened to young people through this, without addressing the, men the well-being challenges that have happened. And so at the moment, the two sectors that would usually pick up on that are not one and the same. They are typically the youth sectors, primarily focused on those kind of social personal development skills. The formal education sector is focused on the academic skills. Yes, there are lots of examples where people are doing both, but at large, those are the two things. And so I don't think there is enough focus, but I think the reason for that is because those two sectors aren't coming together. And rather than one sector thinking they have to figure out all of these needs, if we could lean on our expertise and work together and think about the whole child that way, that for me is the way forward. Um, so I think even when people are thinking, oh, we're not thinking about it enough, what can we do? They are internalizing the solution, assuming they have to solve everything. No, there are experts, there are great people, better placed to focus on some of those things. How do we bring those things together? Thank you so oh, much. Um, I didn't want to get on my soapbox, you see, and I'm on it, so I need to get off. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's kind of the source of all issues here. It's the not communicating. Um, and it's interesting to see how it feeds into mental health and what we can do about it now. Um, I think Bradley has our next question. Hi, Bradley, are you there? With the horrible killing of George Floyd and the return of Black Lives Matter campaign, the international conversation do you think that the world has finally woken up to the reality of inequality and prejudice towards others i mean such a great question thank you bradley for that um i, I know we, we're going to talk about the campaign a bit more as well but i think that one of the reasons we launched the young and black campaign is that we were inundated with with young people who saw this um horrific lynching um, in, on their screens, on every screen, on every platform, and um, the, the triggering that that did for people, um, looking at somebody that looks as if they could be your brother, your father, your, your son, like all of these things that just, um, yeah, really, really caused emotional scarring. And um, I think that the visceral reaction to that and the subsequent protests and the you know global protests and the the the, the response and the demands for change um i think have like have sparked something that i've never seen in my lifetime and i think even our elders who you know have been involved in civil rights and all of these things talk about this feeling different I think something is different about this. I think the difference is um, probably partly connected to COVID as well and connected to the fact that we were all in lockdown and there's, you know, building frustration and, and there have been so many reports about the disproportional impact of COVID on the BAME community and on, you know, interactions with the police in terms of stops and search. And I think there was just a... Uh, tipping point, uh, a kind of a, a straw that broke the camel's back type moment that I think just has ignited a, something that 
we've never seen. Um, but it's the conversation that I think is different. And it's the, it's the ownership that I'm seeing people have to not say, oh, you black person, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what the problem is. You tell me how to fix it. Go fix it. <laughs> There's much more of a mutual, what do we need to do? Wait, do I even understand this problem? And okay, what do I need to do to understand this problem? What do I need to read? What do I need to go listen to? There's more of that than I've ever seen before. And so I can only hope that that triggers sustained change in the way that all the previous reports, um, you know, incidents, all of those things haven't seemed to, in the, you know, embed change. This feels different because of the types of conversation that are happening. So that's my my resolute hope <laughs> that that's the case definitely and it's this kind of shift in education and people educating themselves that kind of deep roots and hopefully will change for the generations and it's the strength and power of education in the way that young people i know i've read so many things and i've not realized how big the gaps in my knowledge have been and throughout my peers everywhere everyone's constantly sharing new things and new things to learn and you know, I really hope it continues and I hope we do change from this. And it's so great to have you here to kind of talk about what you're doing with the hashtag young and black. Um, I think our next question comes from Molly. Um, Molly, what is your question? Uh, okay, um, I want to ask you about um, your experiences as a leading woman in the charity sector and um, what more we need to do to support young women in these careers. And if you have any advice for the future generation and um, if it's okay with you, um, I'd also like to ask if you could tell us um, about some of your experiences of your career being part of the BAME community. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Molly. Um, <laughs> um, I, it's just so, it, you, you don't often stop to reflect and think about um, those things. I think it, you, we, we literally just had an event yesterday where it was where, where we've been running um, a webinar series called Reimagine um, the Future. And, and each week there's been a different theme on um, whether it's reimagine digital um, lifestyles or reimagine safer communities. And so yesterday we had one on reimagining racial inequality. And um, we, we had a similar conversation around um, uh, what it feels like to be uh, a, a black woman leading in the charity sector and um, some of the experiences that I've had just in terms of my leadership. And one of the things I shared is that, which, which was so funny, a few people have kind of come back to me saying how surprised they were about this, but it's something I've spoken about before, I, I've written about as well, which is that very early on in my leadership, I realized that I wasn't leading just for me. <laughs> I wasn't, everything I did was no longer just representing me. I felt like I was representing my race. So my, my success and failure would be attributed to my race. So the additional um, weight of knowing you can't mess up, you can't fail on this thing because that isn't just Indidi failing. Oh, that's that black woman that we gave that chance to. That's, that's her failing, which somehow means mm, maybe we don't go with another black woman. And so whether we whether that's right or wrong, and you know, obviously there's lots of problems with that, that 
that knowledge settled on me really early in my leadership. And I think that accountability that you carry does add additional pressure around the need to succeed because your whole purpose in my mind anyway is to um to open doors and pull ladders down and and get more and more people through through the doors that you've walked through because i i got really used to being the only very early on you walk into a room you're the only one you're you sit on a board you're the only black person let alone black woman you go into an event you're the only the only was something i i had to get used to very early on and i was always always uncomfortable with it largely because i knew so many amazing people who um you know who were of the same background and the same experiences and so i could never quite understand why we were still at the only stage or the first um and so i think that that's probably one of the experiences that has um, been brought to my memory quite recently. It is the additional weight that you carry sometimes when you are the first of something or when you are in a minority in terms of leadership. Um, you, you definitely feel as if your success means more people come through the door and your failure means it, it becomes that much harder for them to do so. Thank you for sharing. And it's so interesting to hear the kind of weight of being the only and something that, you know, is kind of outrageous and yet, you know, echoes so deeply with so many. Um, I think our next question is from Emily. Hi there. So part of the national response to this conversation has been UK's Youth and Young Black Initiative. Can you tell us more about what this initiative is doing and what you hope it will become in the future and how can we get involved and support it? Yay, thank you, Emily. Um, so as I just touched on um, just a, a few questions ago, I, um, when, when the George Floyd incident happened, I mean, I can't really describe, describe the devastation that um, I personally felt. I've got family in the States. I've got um, nieces and nephews who are teenagers. And um, the, the, the concern, the, the, the idea that you know, that could be my brother-in-law, my nephew, that, that all, you know, it's just, and then just this idea that um, there was just something so sinister about the way it happened as well. And so I think all of those things just fed into this sense of total, total helplessness. And I, I know that at least for the first couple of days, I, I think I probably internalised my own pain and trying to process what that meant for me. And very quickly you realize, wait, hold on, you're a leader, you've got an organization, there are other people who are feeling this way, you don't have the luxury of just focusing on your own pain, get yourself out, out of that corner and, um, and figure out what you're going to do. And it started with conversations with our staff internally. Um, and it was really around this, just sharing the space to talk about how we felt but also saying, what can we do? What can we do? Because feeling powerless is the most crippling thing of all. And so conversations with staff, I spoke to other peers and colleagues around this. I spoke to, um, um, you know, lots of people around this idea of what can we do? And through those conversations, the idea of um, having some kind of campaign that really put a spotlight on what 
young voices were feeling and um, um, experiencing because the, the number one question we were getting from our networks were, our young people want to talk, how do we help them talk? We don't have the language, they don't have the language to talk about this. And then young people directly saying, we've got something to say, but does anyone care? Do we have a forum? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? And again, when we're asking, what can we do? That felt like a very obvious connection to make. There's a, there's a need from young people that they want to talk. And there's a need from us to be able to do something valuable in the moment. And so the Young and Black campaign was launched. And in essence, literally what that is, is we asked the question, tell us what it's like growing up young and black in Britain. Tell us what it was like growing up young and black. And so with no further steer, we didn't try and shape the responses. We just asked an open question. And the stories that have come in have just been incredible in their nuance in their the 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 moments that people choose to reflect that they remember the experiences the uniqueness the celebrations the pain all of that coming together in just these short video snippets um, and then we started hearing people saying i don't want to do a video can i can i express myself in a different way and so we now seeing songs and we're seeing poems and artwork and just so many ways of people to answer that question um and so for us the the the, the how we'd love you to be involved and our ask for people is to open your platform up to that question open your platform up to young and young and black um, um members of your communities to share their experience and then reflect on what they're saying like really that's our call to action give up your platform to share a young and black story and you could retweet ours if that's what you want but more powerfully go out to your communities and ask um, um young black members of your community or black members of your community full stop if they will share and how they choose to share and then amplify those stories um and then what we're hoping to do and we're talking to schools we're talking to other organizations and we'd love to um, to then video people watching those stories and reflecting on them. So a bit of a meta experience of watching a video, watching a video, all of those things, um, a bit goggle box like. <laughs> um, but again, just having the opportunity for, again, those young people who have taken that bold step of sharing their story, having them see other people react to it, we think would be really powerful but also using it as a way to continue the conversation. So one of the things someone mentioned, I was on Newsnight earlier, and one of the questions I was asked was um, fascinating. And it wasn't the first time I was asked it, but it was a question that really implied, oh, but if, young, if, if black people are telling their stories, that must mean it's for other black people. So the question was, um, aren't you alienating other races through this campaign? And I love the question because it's precisely what a lot of people think. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why do we think that? Why do we think that a black story must only be for a black audience? Because all the other stories we hear where there are no diversity, we all have to assume that's for us as well. I, I'm not, I, I, no one's told me I can't listen to all these stories and watch all these films. And because I don't see myself reflected in them, no one tells me that's not for me or that I don't have something to learn or glean or be, you know, um, um, 
excited by. So for me, this is a great opportunity to say, if you think this campaign isn't for you, why? Why do you think that? It's young people telling their stories about their experiences. They happen to be black and those stories happen to be about black experiences. All races should have some interest in that, right? So that's the purpose of the campaign. It sounds incredible. And I'm so excited to learn more and hear these stories. Um, Rosie, I think, has our next question. Yeah, hi. Um, just, I was just wanted to ask, so not that long ago, social media was considered to have quite a negative impact on society. Um, and considering the bad press over the years, so it's been cyberbullying or body imaging um, and filtered photos or hateful and abusive speech, do you think digital connectivity has now become an unsung hero of this pandemic and kept us all sane? And also, do you think we've finally unlocked its potential for social actions? Oh, Rosie, what an amazing question. <laughs> um, unsung hero. I love that. I'm going to use that at some point, Rosie, and I will try and attribute it to you. <laughs> <laughs> unsung hero. I love that. Um, absolutely. I mean, 100%. The this is what I mean. Like you, you might have heard the saying of never let a, a crisis go to waste. Um, but there are, there are so many things that COVID has revealed to us that I think it would have taken us decades to accept, adapt to, um, you know, whether that's ways of working or around connectivity. The example I often give, I've got family in lots of different countries at this point, um, my immediate family, and um, we're on WhatsApp all the time and there's group chats and we're talking. For some reason, this pandemic made us set up a Zoom call <laughs> and we had, uh, you know, we've had a couple of them since and we're having these sessions and why haven't we done that before? <laughs> There's been absolutely no reason. Nothing's changed. We're not in the same place. Yes, those of us that are in the same country can't see each other, but it's reminded us that technology is there and there's a way to still feel connected. So I think in those examples, um, we've definitely recognised that distance doesn't mean silence. And you might have seen there's been a lot of, um, what was it, social distancing versus social distancing versus social isolation. And there was a lot of kind of commentary about the difference between those two things. So yes, I definitely think that digital has um, been the unsung hero. Just ask people who have Zoom shares right now. Um, who are very, very happy <laughs> with that purchase. Um, but I do want to say that it's also the shadow of that is that the digital divide has never been more acute. So we've also taken for granted, everyone has a digital device. Everyone must have broadband. Everyone must have access to being able to engage in this way. And it's just not true. And it's not true on levels that I don't think we realise, even down to the simple idea of if you've got a household with three, four, two different levels of students in terms of their education, if they don't have a laptop each, how are they supposed to be learning at the same time while their parents are working? So the, the, the idea of even having a consistent device is one thing. You need to have multiple for this to have worked. And so I think that yes it's definitely the unsung hero but it's also clearly the elephant in the room and we've 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 now had to address that um that inequality is something we can't just allow 
um, um, moving forward. Thank you so much. And distance doesn't mean silence. I love that. Uh, it's so powerful. And I think we have a final question from. Hello, can you hear me? Hi. Hi. Um, so for JRGB members and so many other young people, um, volunteering is such a big part of our lives. And at the moment, obviously, we can't do very much of it. Um, how can young people get back to face-to-face -face volunteering safely as lockdown is now being eased? And what role we have to play in the country getting back to normal? Nice, easy one to end on. Thank you, Devon. <laughs> I love that question because I think, but I also think, I love that question, but I also think young people have been at the forefront of continuing to volunteer even in lockdown and if you think about um the isolated communities and the elderly you've you know you've seen young people you know delivering packages and helping packing and all of those things and i've just it's just filled me with such pride i know that um with charity shops reopening i know that there's been a huge young um contingent of volunteers that have really led the way in in, in supporting charities to be um, 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 staffed and I know that um, NCS as an example NCS grads and all of the people there are are doing you know an incredible amount of work being at the front line of that so I think young people are have been and continue to still be doing that um, what I think and hope will happen is that I think for those young people who may not have thought volunteering was for them I think I hope that this enables them to find a way of um of engaging and volunteering and whether that's social action or or other things i i think there's been more exposure of what those opportunities could look like um and i know that youth organizations are really keen to see how they can keep that going and i think that um going back to my soapbox i'm hoping schools will find a way of really continuing to encourage that as well so um, I, I, I don't think it has stopped. I think that it's continued. I think it's definitely picking up steam now that we're easing lockdown. And my hope is that those who hadn't thought that volunteering was something they could do now have such a wide spectrum of options that they would be able to find something that they can be excited about supporting. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to pick up on um, Devon's question there and continue the conversation about lockdown, having put so many um, corners programmes of the sector, such as NCS, which you sit on the board for, um, kind of bringing them to a halt. How do you think this period will affect the future of rites of passage programmes like NCS or DOV and programmes, both negatively and perhaps positively? Yeah, I honestly think that that's one of the things that causes me the most sadness in all of this it's the it's the moment it's those rites of passage that have been stolen for so many um, young people um those transition points are so important and whether that's transitioning from primary to secondary or you know up to college or uni or work or you know into an apprenticeship whatever it might be the opportunity to to finish something and then prepare yourself to start is so important and I my heart does ache for um, you know the generations of young people that have not had the opportunity to do that um, but I actually think that because of that programs like NCS, um, Duke of Edinburgh, 
um, um, all of the programs our youth organizations do. Um, I actually think the, the spotlight on them is even brighter. I think people are going to understand their role in a way that they may have had the luxury to not even try and think about before. And so this goes back to um, Lewis's question earlier. We need to ensure these organizations can sustain and survive the, the impact they've, they've experienced because there is so much for them to do. That, that there's so much need now for the social personal development, the, the support that youth organizations offer to young people, that that support has, has never been more needed. And so um, I don't think we're gonna see a dip in those in the long run, but we need to find a way of building a bridge to make sure they can be here to pick up on what I expect to be increased demand on the other side of this. It's very true and a penultimate question before my last one and then I'll let you go I promise. Um, these are unprecedented times and the physical and mental health and economic impacts may affect us all for some time to come but do you have hope for the future and what positives may come out of this strange time we're living in? I mean this is why going back to your very beginning question this is why doing things like this is so important to me and, and doing the work that we do is so important because I don't think you can engage with young people and not leave optimistic and positive. Um, I, was, I was literally saying to um, people yesterday that after our, um, our young people's webinar, I, like, the future is in good hands. Like, anytime you have any doubt or question about that, just engage with young people. <laughs> engage in your thinking and the way that you... Um, you are um, uh, creative and innovative in your questioning because I think that that's why it's so important to um, acknowledge the power of youth in the moment, in today. That's why it's so important to give young people agency, to, to, to stand with youth every moment that you can because really I think the more we can unleash the potential of young people today, and, and enable it to affect what we're doing today into tomorrow, um, you can't help but be optimistic. The biggest question is ensuring we and my generation and those above me as well don't get in your way. That's the, that's the big barrier. Um, our job is to amplify and point you in the direction and, and let that rocket fly, really. So I can't be anything but optimistic. And and closing on what we started with, I'm a woman of faith. I fundamentally believe in um, that all things work together for good and that, um, that you know, it, it, it has to get better, but that is the, the fundamental principle of, of who I am as a person. So I have no other choice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we're with you there. Like the youth of today, we're so excited and ready to go. And it's amazing to have people like you on our side and helping amplify our voices. Um, and my final question is, we always ask a guest to nominate and ask another celebrity or community leader to be a future guest on our programmes and help us entertain, entertain children and young people stuck at home. If you've enjoyed tonight's experience, which I hope you have, um, who would you like to nominate for another night? Gosh. <laughs> um, oh gosh, there's so many people. We have many okay. nights. You could do lots of people. Um, oh no, this is so hard. I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, nominate somebody. 
oh god my head is just spinning um do you know what i think just to go on the theme of my whole soapbox and connection um there are some pretty amazing head teachers that i know that um i would i would definitely nominate to kind of come on here and um the one that i'm gonna call out (laughs) he's gonna kill me um is um his name is chris fairburn and he is the head teacher of Totteridge Academy in um, London. And I, the reason why I definitely want him on is because I'd love you to ask him questions about the youth sector and how he's engaging with the youth sector. But also, he's um, he's just a phenomenal leader that I think you'd you'd get a lot out of. He um, he's another teach firster, but he stayed in education and has had a really interesting journey in transforming that school. Um, and he's somebody that passionately believes in young people. Um, but has a very, very um, sharp mind about some of these issues. I, I think you'd get a real kick out of speaking to him. Chris Fairburn. Brilliant. Chris Fairburn. We're writing that down and we'll be in contact. <laughs> you kill me. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Nadi, for you. joining us this evening and inspiring us all. We really loved hearing about your career and your experiences. And we're so grateful for the work you continue to do for young people around the country, especially right now during this pandemic. Um, We'll also want to thank you for bringing the hashtag Black and Young campaign to our attention. And I know you'll have inspired so many people watching this evening with your passion and determination to ensure equality equality for all. Um, So just stay safe, take care, and I hope to see you again very soon. Thank you, Keely. I have to say I have done lots and lots of you know, interviews and conversations. And I, I, I don't know many that have been as expertly um, emceed as you. So thank you very much for, for an thank absolutely you. wonderful experience. If I could say one closing thing to you all, um, I often think about what I wish I'd known growing up. And, um, and it stuck with me all through my teaching and all through here. And every time I get an opportunity to talk to a group of young people, I have to share this, this message of... Um, you really really do not underestimate the power of influence that you have every single one of us has power to influence something around us and your your sphere of influence may be different to somebody else's sphere of influence but you have influence and so the question you ask should ask yourself is what am i doing with that influence every day what am i doing to positively influence my environment Um, You don't wait to do that. Start doing that today. Um, The world needs your generation in a way that I don't think any generation has been needed before. And that isn't to put pressure on you. That's to make you recognize that you are valuable today as you are today. You don't need to improve. You don't need to be better. Those things will come. But your today experience, somebody needs. Somebody needs to hear you. Somebody needs to learn from you. And so use your voice and don't ever allow anybody to silence you, but hold yourself accountable by asking yourself that question. What am I doing to positively influence my environment today? And I, I'm, I'm really appreciative of you having me and I wish you all the very best. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much, Nadibi. Thank you. Um, that is it. That is all we have time for tonight. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening and yet again being part of history. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual We Are Live. 
Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.